An actor in the 1920s said, you never have a second chance to make a first great impression. And for some of you, you know that's only too true. For some of you, like, no, I've overcome that. But my first day in my new high school, the third one I went to in year 10, um, I, I came to this school in London. It was very rough up in the northwest of London. I won't name it um, in case any of the teachers are here, but it rhymes with crook's teeth. And um, I went into science, first lesson, and across the Bunsen burners, I spotted this girl who I was like, there is a girl I need to make a good first impression to. And so in my mind, I had all those things, the, the chat lines. I wasn't a Christian at the time. Uh, I, all the books I'd read about how to get the girl of your dreams, it's probably one of them. And, and I, but I just wanted this girl. just wanted her to be my girlfriend. I wanted to marry her. I wanted to be there for the rest of my life. I just knew in that moment in science, this is the one. Anyway, she happened to be the girl that every teacher gets to like greet new guys to the school. Like to show them around, because she was very friendly, she's very lovely. So she came over to me with this lovely smile, and she's like, hey, welcome to your new prison school. Um, let, me, let me take you around to your next lesson if you want. We got the same lessons, let's take you around to maths. And so I did the coolest line, which I thought at the time was the best thing. I just said, no thank you. <laughs> I'll find my own way. And 10 minutes late into maths, I stumbled through the door and like kind of, kind of say this excuse about, sorry, I'm new, I didn't know where this, and there she was, stood at the back, just with this smuggest grin on her face, like, I told you so. Anyway, 11 years later, we're married. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So after a couple of years of trying to sort my life out, I became a Christian, we dated four years, then we married seven years, but the thing is, is for four years, she thought I was an absolute idiot. <laughs> And it was really hard to shake that off, really hard to shake off the arrogance, because the thing is, is, beginnings really matter. We're starting a series in 1 John. And 1 John is a letter written in the New Testament, and it's written to a church in Ephesus about 90 AD. So we're talking about 60 odd years after Jesus has died, resurrected, and gone to be with his Father in heaven. And so now we've got first or second, second or third generation Christians those Christians who, for them, they weren't around the table when Jesus was having feasts. For them, they weren't around when Jesus was doing miracles. They didn't see Jesus walk on water. They weren't there at the big old feast of bread and fish. They weren't around at those amazing times that we tell our kids in Sunday school. They weren't around. For them, they were just rumors. For them, that was like your Uncle Steve telling you a story at a barbecue, and you're like, all right, I've heard this a million times. For them, they, they weren't there. And so John is writing to this new church to say, keep on going, be encouraged, but remember, remember all that has gone before. And so he wants to lay down in this book the foundations of what is to be the new church. Lay down the foundations of what people are gonna be expressing. To lay down the foundations of what we know to be the good news or what we call the gospel in church, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've got a Bible, flick it open to 1 John. In the Bibles in front of you, it'll be on page 1,225. And we're just gonna start by reading from verse, from verse one. It's on the right-hand side of the Bible, right the way towards the end. It says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, 
and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you so that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. We're gonna stop just there. The first thing that the writer of this letter, John, wants to say to this community of Jesus followers is this, that Jesus of Nazareth, that 33-year-old carpenter who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, he is the word of life. The word of life. That anything that you may speak about regarding life finds its definition and foundation in this life of Jesus. That anything you might have, that anything you might think about what gives life purpose, what gives life meaning, is to be found in this one, Jesus. The very good news, the gospel as we talk about it in church, this good news, it's the same word good that is used to describe the creation of the world in the beginning in Genesis. That as God creates the world, he says, it is good. As he creates animals, he says, it is good. As he creates stars and flings them into space and seas and land, he says, it is good. And as he rests with you and I and makes humans, he says, it is very good. That this good news that we're talking about, it's not just Auntie Mabel found her cat, good news. It's not just the local cricket club got several sixes. It's not that kind of good news. This is the kind of news that brings life and brings creation and changes everything we could possibly understand or think about in regards to life. Good news. The thing is, it's not just words as we see in this letter. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just something you learn and then recite, but it's tangible. You can feel it. You can touch it. You can hear it. You can see it. You can even taste it. Psalm 38 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And if you're a little Jewish boy in the first centuries, you'd be, um, when you go to synagogue to learn about the scriptures, quite often the rabbi would pass around a pot of honey. So you take a bit and put it on your lips as you open the words of scripture. And you physically taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you felt the gospel? Have you seen the good news? Have you heard the good news. I think there are three steps to understanding what the gospel looks like in our life. And the first is this, remember where you came from. Now the thing is, is all throughout scripture when the Israelites in the Old Testament were telling about the goodness of God, they would always start by saying, we were once captives in Egypt. We were once bondaged, we were once slaves. Remember where you came from. Because it's so important to show that God's goodness, that we also remember that we've got stuff to deal with. We've got, some, we've got some prisons to break out of. We've got some bondages that we need to release. Remember where you came from. I grew up in a, a little seaside town called Littlehampton, which if you're from London and in the 90s went for a seaside trip, you probably ended up there. And it's at the end of the train line. It's rubbish as a town. It's got one uh, world record breaking uh, stat, and that is that it has the world's largest Bench. <laughs> Bench, to like sit on. World's largest one of those. Um, but it was rubbed. For me, it held all kinds of, um, all kinds of upset. For me, it holds all kinds of anxiety. I, I moved from council, council estate to council estate. We, we did a big move once from upstairs with a balcony to downstairs, we had a garden. Like living in council flats and all sorts. 
And the thing is, is that Little Hampton for me holds this kind of anxiety. And then I read the Bible and say, a prophet's not welcome in his hometown. And so I've only been there three times since I left. But, remember, but it's important to know where I'm come from so I can see how far God has brought me. Remember where you come from. That stuff is important because it describes the goodness that God brings to us. But the second thing is, is that we are no longer who we used to be when we encounter the good news. We're no longer who we used to be. Sometimes we live lives if we've broken out of prison but still wear the garments, right? That we're still covered in that orange overall. And yet we're no longer who we used to be. The thing is, when I lived in Little Hampton, I was a ragamuffin. I would run around estates. I would steal stuff. I would be a, a nuisance on our estate. Absolute nightmare. Then I ran away from home and ended up in London. And I was still all, had problems with drink. I had problems with, with doing the wrong things all the time. But when I met with Jesus, something tangible changed in my life. Something tangible, which meant that I'm no longer who I used to be. I'm a new creation, the Bible says. The Bible even says that you and I are sons and daughters of the Most High God. But it also says, now start acting like it. That we're allowed to be at the Lord's table daily. That when we gather, we gather as inheritors of all that God has in store. We're no longer who we used to be. And the third thing is this. But whilst we remember where we came from, we're no longer who we used to be. The third thing is you're called for a much bigger purpose than you ever could have imagined. The thing is, growing up, I had no ambitions at all. Some of you have got diaries of five-year plans, and I admire you, but I had none of that. It just exist. That would be a success. And then when I moved to London, I wanted to join the army. Just to, I just thought that was a good career option. You didn't have to have qualifications to get in the army. You just had to be willing, and I was willing, so I was going to join the army. But then I became a Christian that summer, and I, I just felt God say that I'm called to much more than just fulfilling my own ambition or my own destiny. When you become a Christian, you become part of a body. You become part of a body that has the greatest commission, the Bible says, and that is to repeat the story, to, com to continue to tell the story of good news, that you were once in bondage, you were once enslaved. And yet God has pulled you through, sometimes kicking and screaming, into a land of freedom. And so you continue the cycle of repeating the good news of Jesus Christ that brings life in all its fullness. John verse 3, 1 John verse 3 says this, We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. This life that Jesus offers isn't just an add-on. It's not just a membership to a new club. It's not just a, a new diet plan or a, a new scheme for this year. It's not just for those who have got nothing better to do on a Sunday. You know, I'm missing match of the day to be here. <laughs> Instead, it's to, to be in fellowship with one another as we reflect the fellowship of our Heavenly Father and His Son and their Spirit. That as you sit next to your neighbor, left and right of you, you're embodying something that is holy, that is something sacred. You might have walked in off the street today thinking this is the new branch of Pizza Express, but I tell you, you've stumbled into something holy, something sacred. And you know, when I see Jesus in the New Testament, all I know is that you are so welcome. As that lady who brings the alabaster jar who's, who's got all kinds of stuff, pours it out on Jesus' feet, Jesus doesn't shirk her away. Jesus doesn't say, no, go away. He says, you're so welcome. So regardless of whether you've been a Christian a million years or you just stumbled in, 
You're part now of the fellowship of our Heavenly Father, His Son, and their Spirit. You know, there's people all over the world who are Christians who, give up, who would give up their life to do what we do. There are people all over the world, our brothers and sisters in the faith, who, who are persecuted for what they do, who can't even own a Bible, yet I've got 16 translations at home. You know, there, there are people all over the world who would give their left arm to, to come here and sing worship songs, and yet sometimes I just think, oh, I'm not feeling it today. There are some people who would give up everything they have to meet together and to be encouraged by one another and to live life together publicly. And yet sometimes I think, I've got better things to do. You know, Lord, I repent if ever I thought that this thing is just a hobby, that this thing is just a Sunday activity, that this thing is just a way to get my kids off my hands for an hour and a half. <laughs> we are on holy ground, brothers and sisters, that what we do here mirrors what goes on in heaven. You know, Jesus says to his disciples that they, the world, will know you're my disciples by the way you have love for one another. Not a fancy sermon, not great worship, although we have it, not flashing lights, although we have those too, but the world will know we're Jesus' disciples by the way we love one another. So I don't know how much you love the person to your left or right, don't say it out loud. But I remember when I first started going to church, I'd been to church for two years and I was struggling because at home it was messy and I would go to church and lift my hands up at the chorus and say amen to the pastor. But then I'd go home to have bailiffs knocking on the door, to have a pirate radio station that my brother hosted in our front room. It was just chaotic, it was, it was nuisance. And yet, two years in, my pastor started to notice that I was losing enthusiasm, finding excuses to be elsewhere. And he said, would you like me to find somewhere for you to live? I was like, go for it. So we got in touch and, and I moved in to live with these, this wonderful Christian family. And not only did I start to see prayer at the dinner table or morning devotions as this family did, they also shopped in Waitrose. <laughs> <laughs> which was a new thing for me. Never knew what a cardo was until that moment. But they were amazing, absolutely incredible family. But the thing is, I just started studying. I just started doing a degree in youth work and theology because I was working with young people in Northwest London. And I don't know if you're into banking. You may be a banker. Love you. But when I was a student, I went to a bank and they gave me what's called a student overdraft. Which if you're a banker, that's a very clever thing. Give a 19-year-old loads of money, which they never have to pay back, right? So I spent it all with no income. And then I changed bank accounts expecting for it to completely disappear. And then I started getting letters through the door, first in black font and then in red. And each time I'd rip it up and throw it away. And then one morning I came down for breakfast and on the dining table was one of the letters that said my bank statement, how much I owed, all this stuff. And my stomach just dropped out. I was like, oh gosh, I'm busted. And I said to them, um, I said to them, oh, it's cool, it's cool, I'm, I'm gonna get a new job and um, to work on side of doing the youth work stuff so I can pay this back. And they're like, don't worry, we've paid it. I was like, what? And they'd paid it all. And I said, okay, what I'll do, I've seen your garden's a mess. I'm quite happy to mow a lawn, paint a fence, whatever. I'll do all that. And they're like, no, not at all. Not at all. Because the thing is, the reckless love of God, when it's mirrored by the reckless love of brothers and sisters in Christ, shows me more about Jesus' love for me, right? And so suddenly in the very physical, in the tangible, in the touchable, I started to see the grace of God. And no matter what you're carrying today, your debts are paid. You're forgiven. 
You're forgiven for all that you carry. And I just pray that we be a community that lives a life that is broken and pulled out for one another that reflects that same grace, the grace of Jesus, right? Verse four says this. We write this, we write this good news, we write about this gospel to make our joy complete. Is Jesus enough? Is your joy complete in him? Is your joy made complete in the good news, all that God has given us? Or do we still long for other stuff? Do we still desire more money? Do we still desire a change of circumstance? We sing sometimes on a Sunday that song, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. And the thing is, is that the world offers so many frames for us to put our trust in. So many other support structures by which we can place stuff in. More money, that job, that change in family circumstance, more money, a better body, uh, like other, other approval from other people, more money, a change in family circumstance, whatever it is, and more money. <laughs> but yet, the line finishes, but holy trust in Jesus' name is our joy truly complete in all that God has done for us in all that God is going to do for us and all that God does through our neighbor. Is he enough? Because there is nothing more stable. There's nothing more solid, more secure than the very foundation of our faith as the Bible writers say. Foundation is Jesus Christ. There's nothing more stable than that. Ephesians puts it like this, consequently, you and I are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, that's you and I, are joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you and I too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, Jesus is the word of life because he truly defines what life is. But not only is Jesus the word of life, he also breathes life into death. And it says this in 1 John again, 1 verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all righteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Thing is, there's so many things that will discount us from telling the good news stories. There's so many things that will discount us from sharing the gospel of Jesus. There's so many things that will hold us back, that there'll be baggage that we carry that will stop us from sharing that good news openly and honestly. I know how the internal dialogue goes like, it might be a bit like this. If I tell my colleague about Jesus, then they'll just quickly remind me about the time I drunk too much at that staff Christmas party. Or maybe it goes a bit like this, that if I tell my sister about my faith, then she'll just remind me of the time that I tried to drown a goldfish by disproving a theory that if you pull a goldfish backwards, then it drowns. Nope. Uh, 
Or maybe it goes like this. The, if I tell this person on the tube, tube sitting next to me about the good news of Jesus, then they'll suddenly start asking loads of questions that I, did, I hadn't prepared for. Then suddenly the guard will be down and they'll just see I'm just a fraud. I don't know all the intricacies of the Christian faith to help them out with their doctrinal questions. Let me tell you a secret. We all wear masks. Every one of us. Every one of us puts up a mask. The word hypocrite, often used in the Bible, literally means one who wears masks. So we sometimes have our church mask, which says everything's fine, everything's gravy, it's all good. Then we have our work mask that says, please do not ask me a question about Jesus ever. Then we have our family mask, where it might be a bit of both. We all wear masks. We all carry stuff we don't want people to, hide, people to see. We all carry stuff, and yet the Bible says this, in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces, unmasked faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we contemplate all that He's done in us, our arms start to get tired, and we can drop the masks. Because it's not about our goodness, it's not about our righteousness, it's not about our perfection, it's all about Jesus. And the thing is, you might think you have some dark spots in your life, you might think you have some shadows in your life, but this passage in 1 John lets us know that those dark spots and those shadows give opportunity for God's light to shine even brighter. The way you may see a darkness, God sees an opportunity to break in and bring light into your life that you might think you're at the end of the tracks, the wrong side of town, that you've, you've come from that place. But yet God sees an opportunity to bring about light and life, wherever you bring. Jesus isn't just the word of life, but he's the word that breathes life into death, that breathes hope into hopelessness, that brings bravery into places of discouragement, that brings light into areas of darkness. Because the gospel is this, that who, who was at the beginning of the world, he who was at the beginning of the world came into our world and he takes the weight of the world upon his shoulders and he dies. But then, three days later, he rises again. And then again, he rises even further to be with his heavenly father so that you and I can do the same. No matter what you're carrying, no matter what is putting you on a cross right now, whatever stuff in your past that, that means that you shouldn't have hope, that that is opportunity for resurrection to come. That is not just place for resurrection to come, but, but intimacy with the Father as we see in Jesus' life. You and I can experience that same oneness with God today. No matter what you're carrying, no matter what you've brought this morning, whatever burn you have, Nothing stops you. Nothing will hinder you from being with your Father in heaven. St. Paul says this in Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, that means praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And it goes on. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever you're going through, whatever you face, nothing can stop you from being with God. Nothing. 